You are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. We are currently working through a series called Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text pokes and prods us with the question, will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before the King and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Well, if you take your Bibles out this morning, we are in 2 Samuel as we have been for a while. And our sermon text this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 26. In 2 Samuel chapter 20, in one sense, we're really coming to the end of the narrative of 2 Samuel. The, the concluding chapters are like an added appendix, which are going to be a great help to us to put together this story. But really here, we're coming to the end of this long narrative. And what we find is a bit depressing. And so we are going to focus in on the end of this narrative in 2 Samuel chapter 20. This is God's word, so hear it, starting in verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel." So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue them, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Carathites, and the Pelathites, and all the mighty men, and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is at Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword, in its sheath fastened on his thigh, and as he went forward it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, "'Is it well with you, my brother?' And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. 
And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Bethmaacah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him at Abel and Bethmaacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to him, speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehida, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jarite was also David's priest. Oh, Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word, and you would make use of it for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start this morning with a question. So here's the question. What do you do with a worthless man? What do you do with a worthless man? And when I say worthless, I mean worthless. The Hebrews would have said a a son or a man of Belial. We can try to translate that into our own setting. We might say a, a scumbag or a scoundrel or the lowest of low or maybe a different word that we couldn't use in this setting, but that might actually fit what the Hebrew would have meant, a son of Belial. And so what do you do with the worthless man? Do you try to talk him out of his madness, giving an impromptu counseling session, or do you begin to, to moralize him, giving him lessons in morality, hoping that a lesson or two will awaken and revive his seared conscience? Do you try to ignore him and hope he goes away? You just bury your head in the sand, hoping that everything will be okay if you ignore this worthless man. Or do you just run away? You hightail it out of there, running as fast as humanly possible. What do you do with a worthless man? Well, the Bible gives us an answer on what to do with a worthless man. Just a few chapters down the road in 2 Samuel, we find the answer. David has a song in chapter 23, and he begins to sing about worthless men and what should be done with worthless men. And he says this in verses 6 and 7, giving us the biblical prescription. He says, 
But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So what do you do with the worthless man? Well, according to David's Holy Spirit-inspired song, you can't handle them. According to David, worthless men cannot be managed or counseled or put up with. They're like thorns, according to David. David says if you grab hold of the worthless man, you will be pierced through by a worthless man. Instead, the only way to deal with a worthless man is to dispense with everything delicate And arm yourself. David calls for weapons of war. He calls for iron and the shaft of a spear. Worthless men need to be met with violence. Better yet, if you have a a match and a can of gas, douse those thorns and burn them with fire until they're utterly consumed. That's what David says in chapter 23, verses 6 and 7 of 2 Samuel. And as we take in those words, they're harsh words. They seem cruel, they're decisive, they're, they're clear, they, they make us squirm and sweat, and we probably didn't imagine we were going to be forced to deal with those words this morning as we drove into church. But they are true words, and they are true words because they are God's words. The biblical prescription for worthless men is swift judgment. And so as we turn to our passage this morning in chapter 20, David is going to be tested with his own words. In chapter 20, David is met by a worthless man, Sheba the son of Bichri. And the question we have to ask this morning is this, will David obey his own prescription? Or to put it another way, will David judge the worthless man? But as in all good stories, and this is certainly a good story, there are twists and turns that we don't expect. And the twist is this, Sheba isn't the only worthless man that David is going to have to deal with. In fact, compared to the other worthless man that David will have to deal with, Sheba is relatively benign. And again, we're going to have to ask this morning, will David follow his prescription? Will he bring swift judgment upon the worthless man? And as we think about these questions, they are not insignificant questions to ask because they they direct us to the very heart of David's calling. We have to remember who David is. He is not a private man like we are. We're just private persons. But, But David is the Messiah of God, called and set apart for God and for his people. And this means something for David. It means that he has a job to do. He must lead the people of God and care for the people of God. Importantly for our task, he must carry out the judgments of God. And so we need to turn to this story and see what sort of answers we can find for our questions. So let's look at the text together and work through the entirety of it. And so as we enter back into the story this morning, we have to remember where we are. We are in the middle of a war of words. Two parties are fighting. There is Judah on the one hand. And then there are the ten northern tribes of Israel, simply known as Israel, and they're going at it in the scene, back and forth, and it's hot, the men are angry, and everything is going sideways. If you remember from last week, this was supposed to be a day of repentance and renewal when all of Israel would gather together and set up David as their king and enjoy his reign. But that's not what's happening. It's a big family fight full of envy and hatred. And in the midst of all of these words, in the back and the forth, one man has had his fill of it. We just get the bare bone essentials about this man in verse 1. We get his name. His name is Sheba, 
the son of Bichri. We get his background, where he's from. He's a man of Benjamin. And we get this one piece of information that is so pertinent. The text tells us that he is a worthless man. He's a worthless man. And so here is Sheba, the worthless man, and he has had enough of all the back and forth, all of the fighting. So what does he do? He blows his trumpet and he says this to all his northerners. Verse 1. We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. And what Sheba is doing here, he's calling for a mass desertion of David. He essentially is saying this, David, he's not my king. David, he's not your king. Everyone go home and act as if David doesn't matter. Go home. And so David calls, and Sheba calls for this desertion, and this is what Sheba gets. Look at verse 2. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba the son of Bichri. Now just put yourself in the shoes of David. This would have been so demoralizing. David didn't even have the chance to clean up after Absalom's big mess. He even had the chance to, to take care of the ravaged concubines before he is met with a mass desertion from Israel. As we see in this text, things go from bad to worse. But David isn't going to take any of this lying down. David acts out of character. He takes action. He acts like a, a younger David. He acts swiftly and decisively. He calls for a mass of the new commander of his army, and he tells him to assemble a, a fighting force from the men of Judah in three days' time so that they might go pursue Sheba the son of Bichri and deal with the worthless man. But as we keep reading, we find out that Amasa was the wrong pick. Rather strangely, Amasa, who just got this promotion, delays and doesn't get the job done. Three days go by, and David looks out, and there is no Amasa, there is no army, there is no, no forces from Judah go to fight Sheba, the son of Bichri. And so David has to act without the advantage of numbers. And so he sends out Abishai, along with his own standing army and personal bodyguard, to get the job done. And even though David doesn't have the advantage of numbers here like he wanted to, this group of men would have been enough to get the job done. Think about this group. It's the Carathites, it's the Pelophites, it's David's mighty men. These are professional soldiers. They live and they breathe for war. They're trained for it and they're, they're good at it. They're the best at it. And really, as we think about it, at this point, the story should just be about over. We should get maybe one or two more verses at this point saying something like this. Abishai took David's men and destroyed Sheba, and all was well in Israel. But the chapter keeps going on. And at this point, we get a twist in the story the story forsakes for a moment Sheba, the son of Bichri, putting him on hold and focuses all of our attention on Joab. And it's only fitting that when Joab appears, there is a flurry of activity. Somehow, someway, Amasa catches up with these fighting men, and, and Joab goes to Amasa. He, he fakes friendship. He speaks of peace. He says in verse 9, Is it well with you, my brother? And then he reaches out with his right hand and, and grabs his beard to pull him in for a kiss. But he had dropped his sword and he, he picked it up with his left hand. And then he plunged the sword into Amasa's belly. And what follows is gruesome. Amasa, with a single blow, is literally gutted by Joab like you would gut an animal. 
His entrails spill out on the ground and great amounts of blood fall everywhere. And the text asserts just how gruesome this was. Soldiers are going by. They're trained soldiers. They've seen blood in battle. And they stop and stagger at the scene, so much so that there's a traffic jam until a man grabs a massa and pulls the bloody mess out into a field so that the traffic will flow again. And so we see this in the text. And we ask the only logical question we can, what is going on here? This was supposed to be about Sheba, but what is going on here? Well, murder, that much is clear. We see it. Even more, as we look deeper into the story, we can see motivation. Joab is taking vengeance. Amasa took his job, and now Joab is taking Amasa's life. But there's even more going on here. This isn't just about murder or about a job or about honor and privilege. This is ultimately about control of the kingdom. So after Joab murders Amasa, what happens? One of Joab's men come upon the scene, stand by the body of Amasa, and yells to all the men in earshot, verse 11, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Those are charged words, politically charged words. Sure, David is mentioned in the chant, but David isn't in the prominent position. Joab is mentioned first, whoever favors Joab. And it is Joab that the men of Israel must rally around. Let him follow Joab. And David is just a byline. And as readers, we're startled with this reality. Joab, the strong man, is taking control of the kingdom. He's taking control of the kingdom. And this is apparent when we turn to the rest of the story. Joab takes control of the rest of the story. So the story shifts back and shows us Sheba. Sheba is holed up in the city of Abel, verse 14. And so it is Joab who leads the army there and who leads the charge against the city, building siege works and deploying battering rams, verse 15. And everybody, both in the city and among the fighting forces of David, know who is in charge. Joab is in charge. And so when that wise woman comes to the city wall in protest, who does she call for? Verse 16, she calls for Joab. She knows who's in charge. And everybody, both in the ranks of David and in the city, knows who to fear. It is Joab. You can just hear the dread in the woman's voice. Verse 19, you seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab is a man who can swallow up a city. And it is Joab who has the authority to negotiate terms of peace. Verse 21, and it is Joab who receives the the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri. And it is Joab who brings the story to a close. He blows the trumpet. He decides when the story is over. And when he decides it's over, it's over. Verse 22. And so there we have the story of chapter 20. And we need to return to our questions. And so we ask... Will David obey his own words? Will David bring swift judgment to the worthless man? And the answer we're forced to give after reading through chapter 20 and wrapping our arms around it is an unsatisfying answer. It leaves a bad taste in our mouth. Sure, Sheba is dead. He lost his head. But David didn't really have all that much to do with it. His orders were neglected and disobeyed. Amasa delayed and didn't get his job done. And Joab committed a coup 
and didn't do what David said. No one is listening to David. And the reality is that we're left in a worse situation than when we started. David was worried about Sheba at the beginning of chapter 20. He said in verse 5 with urgency, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do more harm than Absalom. But David doesn't understand what's really going on all around him, even among his own men. The greater threat to the throne, the greater threat to the kingdom is not Sheba, it is Joab himself. And the story ends with Joab taking control of everything. And there is nothing David can do about it. David is too old, too weak, too compromised to carry out swift judgment against the worthless man. So at the end of the story, we're left with bad news. A thorn has grown up within Israel, and no one can do anything about it. So here we are at the end of the story, disappointed. We wanted something different for David. We want something different for the kingdom of God. But before we move on and latch our hearts onto some good news, we need to deal with this scene and this disappointment. And this disappointment begins to instruct our hearts with three lessons. And I want to draw out three lessons from this story to teach us. So the first lesson is this. Cut down thorns when God gives you the strength. Cut thorns down when God gives you strength. That's the first lesson. Now, just consider David's life for a moment. Going back in time, there was a time in David's life when he was bold and strong and courageous. There didn't seem to be a thing David couldn't do. He killed giants. He led the army of Israel into battle again and again and again. He was victorious wherever he went. Remember that scene in 2 Samuel chapter 8? He went to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. And wherever David went, there was victory. And he struck fear into the heart of his opponents. No one could stand before David. And it was in this day of his strength that David was supposed to cut down thorns. It was in that day when David was supposed to deal with worthless men, swift judgment. But here's what happened. David didn't act in the day of his strength. He had an opportunity to cut down Joab, the worthless man, but he didn't do it. Let's just remind ourselves of this scene. Go back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 3. And if you remember this scene, it's in the aftermath of Saul's death and a civil war has broken out within Israel. And it's at this point that Abner, the commander of some of the forces within Israel, comes to his senses and he wants peace. So he's going to hand over the northern tribes of Israel to David so that they might all be united underneath him. And as readers, we're so thankful. We want the bloodshed to stop. But what happens? Well, Joab hears about this plan. Joab hears that Abner was with David. And what does Joab do? He goes off and he murders Abner. Now, we need to turn our attention to David. And what does David do about this? Does he do justice? Does he grab iron? Does he grab the shaft of a spear? Does he cut down the thorn? Well, the answer is no. In the day of his strength, David simply lamented the situation. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 39 was David's response. Listen to it. David says, And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. What does David do in the day of his strength? He sees a worthless man, Joab, and what does he do? He just complains. He just complains about it. 
And so hear this charge. When God gives you strength, use it. When God gives you strength, use it. And we must learn to embrace the wise ordering of God. There are seasons and stages of life when we are strong, when we're naturally and spiritually constituted for doing the hard work of dealing with thorns. God doesn't usually give this sort of work to to old men. He doesn't give this work at all to little boys. He gives this work to men and women, full-grown, ready for the work. And so what might this look like? Well, this applies to all of us, but there's a pointedness to this for anyone who is in leadership. So think, for an elder, for a ministry leader, for a pastor, it looks like tackling the hard stuff, like preaching the sermon that nobody wants to preach or that nobody wants to hear. It looks like having that terribly awkward conversation that nobody wants to have. Or for a dad or for a mom, it looks like confronting that sin that has grown up in the family that nobody wants to deal with anymore. It's just there, but we want to pull back from it. And so here's the charge. When God gives you strength, when God gives you strength, use it. Cut down the thorns. Lesson number two. Neglected thorns grow strong. Neglected thorns grow strong. So we can go back to the story of David. Joab killed Abner. David didn't do anything about it. Maybe behind the scenes, behind the text, from what we know, David pulled Joab aside and he gave him a stern talking to. He, He lashed him with his tongue. Maybe he did that. But David never dealt with Joab head on, man to man. Life went on as usual. Joab kept his position and kept doing his thing. We can ask, well, what did this yield for David? Well, David's negligence brought forth a situation that David couldn't remedy. The thorn grew strong, slowly, subtly, until that thorn became stronger than David himself. And this is what we're faced with at the end of David's life. The thorn Joab is effectively taking control of the kingdom, and all that David can do is sit there and watch helplessly because he did not deal with it in the day of his strength. And we need this lesson put squarely before us, don't we? And we need it put squarely before us because dealing with thorns is difficult work. We do not naturally want to do it. When push comes to shove, dealing with thorns is painful and costly and rigorous. And when we are confronted with the hard work, thousands of excuses start coming into our minds trying to take control of us. Fear and doubt whisper in our ears saying, you can't possibly do this. You can't possibly do this. Procrastination comes along and and says to us, you can deal with this tomorrow or next week or next month or maybe in the next season of your life when God gives you more strength. Just wait it out a bit. Or self-preservation kicks in and says, don't act. That's not your problem. That's got to be someone else's problem. Let them take it on the chin. Let them do the hard work. But here the text of Scripture is so good for us because it comes and it pushes us It pushes all of these excuses aside and tells us neglected thorns grow strong. And it encourages us forward. It says, work now so that you won't have to suffer the bitter consequences later. The story bids us to look at David. To compare 2 Samuel chapter 3 with 2 Samuel chapter 20. If you do 2 Samuel chapter 3, you're going to get 2 Samuel chapter 20. And the text says, don't do it. Don't do it. 
So neglected thorns grow strong. Lesson number three, the last lesson. We must consider the future. We must consider the future. So back to David again. So because David didn't deal with Joab, in the day of his strength, Joab grew strong, so strong that David couldn't deal with Joab. And the sad result was this. David had to, at the end of his life, hand off the problem of Joab to who? To his own son, Solomon. Listen to this sad scene from 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. David says this to his son as his son takes up the rein. David says, Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. That is a sad scene because that is not the way it's supposed to be. A father should do what? A father should give his son an inheritance of good things. Not a list of matters undone, unfinished, certainly not a hitless son. Take care of this man. I could never take care of myself. But that's exactly what David gave to his son. And the text is calling out to us, if we can hear it, especially for those of us who are in the day of our strength to consider the future, the text is asking us, what hard task can you take on today in your strength, in the church, in the family, in the culture, so that you might leave a godly inheritance to your children? That you might not leave them as David left his son Solomon. You, you know what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me. Deal with him in your wisdom. Oh, may we never say that to our children or the future generations. And so the text calls to us, we need to consider the future and work so that we might hand a godly inheritance off to them. And so we see from this sad and disappointing ending, there is profit for our souls. We get to look at David and draw lessons for us. And these are all important lessons, lessons we need to take to heart. But this text, as all scriptures do, take us past ourselves. They, they take us past all the work we need to get after, and they ultimately take us to the Lord Jesus himself. And as we think about this story in the end of 2 Samuel chapter 20, the story should leave an ache in our hearts. David didn't do what needed to be done. He didn't grab hold of the iron. He didn't grab hold of the shaft of the spear. He didn't light the thorns on fire. He didn't do his work as the Messiah of God. David failed. But we have a gospel hope, and the gospel hope isn't David. Even more importantly, the gospel hope isn't us and our strength about dealing with thorns. It is ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. And our hope must rest squarely after reading this chapter upon the shoulders of Jesus and the day of his coming strength in the second coming. What does the second coming mean for us? Well, listen to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Jesus will come in strength. And John says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name that no one knows but himself, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Brothers, sisters, bank on this. There is a coming day when all Joabs will be dealt with. There is a day when all thorns will be cut down and cast away and and burnt with fire. Our King, the Lord Jesus, will come in the full array of the glory of his kingship and in the full power of his might. And not one foe, not one enemy, not one Joab, not one worthless man will be able to stand before him. And in perfect righteousness and in perfect justice, he will speak a word. That's all he will need to do. He will speak a word and all of the wicked will perish. They shall perish before him. And that's our hope. Christ is coming and he's going to come in the full strength of his kingship. And he will deal with every thorn. And the result will be this. There will be no thorn left in this world. And we, God's people, will be saved. We will be saved. The reality is we often don't consider this important note of the gospel message. The coming of Christ, his future judgment. It's a note in the gospel message we often don't play or we forget to play or we we leave out. We rightly play the note of the cross, don't we? It's a precious note. It's a good note. And I'll play it right now. Brothers, sisters, look at the cross of Christ. Look and see him crucified. There he is, dead for your sins. And if you come to him with faith this morning, all of your sins are gone. Every single one of them, and you will be cleansed. Christ dead for sinners. And we rightly play the note of the resurrection, and that too is a precious note, is it not? It is so good. And I'll play it for you right now. Go to the empty tomb and look inside. There is no one there because Christ rose again from the dead. He is the champion of Satan and death and hell. He is victorious, and all of us who have faith in Christ Jesus share in his victory right now. We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we rightly play the note of Christ's session in heaven. We can play that note again this morning. Hear the good news. Christ has passed through the heavens, all of them, and he has been seated at the right hand of God the Father, and there he sits, and there he reigns over all things, directing all things for the good of his people, for us. And there he sits interceding for us by name, bearing us up to the Father. There he sits giving us the Spirit, communicating to us all that is in him. There he is working for our good even right now. Good news. But we must also play the last note of the gospel. And the last note of the gospel is that Christ is coming. And he is coming to judge the world and make war against all of the wicked. He will grab the iron. He will grab hold of the shaft of the spear. And he will eradicate every thorn from this world. And that too is our glorious salvation that Christ is coming. And he will completely and fully save us. And without this last note of the gospel, none of the other notes make any sense anymore. Christ is coming. And so, friends, I ask you this morning, 
Will you believe that? Will you trust that? Will you rest in it? Because it is true and it is what we need to hear this day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are stunned at the news of Jesus. We confess that we often forget about the coming of Christ and what that means for this world. We often think that this world will keep going on as it is, full of thorns. But the truth is Christ will come, he will split the heavens, and he will deal with every thorn. And so we ask this morning, would you give us faith to believe the news? Would you give us faith to believe the news? Even more, would you encourage our hearts to live the Christian life now, knowing that Christ is coming for us? And so we offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.